Well, hey, uh, one person that's in the, the service who I care deeply for, Melissa Anderson, I just want to say thank you. Can you give it up for Melissa? <laughs> Melissa, if I could um, brag on Melissa for a second. Melissa has a really hard do- job. She, she's in the ministry that probably has like the least resources always. Every church, like the kids ministry, has the least resources. She has to do so much with so little, and she does it so amazingly. But she doesn't just do it here at the Crown Point campus. Melissa gives oversight to all, all of our different campuses with what's going on in their kids' ministry. So from me, who I, I serve at the Hope Reporters campus, I know Melissa's had her fingerprints on our ministry there, loving kids across Northwest Indiana. Thank you so much for what you do. Week in, week out, it's, it's just a privilege to be on staff with uh, such amazing women of God, honestly. I love our church and the, the amazing women that are here. So thank you, Melissa, from me to you. Uh, open up your Bible. Yeah, yeah, that, that's like double honor. That's what the Bible says that people are worthy. Uh, Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke, not Romans. Luke. Luke chapter 10. Um, as you're trying to figure out if Luke's even in the Bible, because we've been in Romans for so long, uh, it's back in the Gospels. Go open up to Romans, go back a little bit. Luke 10. Um, as you open up there, uh, I was reminded that something uh, sort of significant happened between my wife and I recently. We crossed the threshold where we had been in a romantic relationship for longer than a decade. I know I look like I'm 12. All right. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, you don't know how, how I phrase that. You're not sure. Do I applaud? What does that mean? You've been in a romantic relationship. Was it nefarious? You're like, well, please explain, Dan. And I will. Uh, my, my wife and I started dating in uh, like the, the, the winter, January of 2008. And uh, we, we've crossed that line now. We've been married. 2009 is when we uh, got married. It'll be, uh, by God's grace, nine years coming up here this year. And uh, I was remember, remembering back to the days when Chris and I met because we actually knew each other a couple of years before we started dating. I was 19 years old. And as every 19-year-old man thinks he is, he's awesome. I was a total punk. And my wife and I, we met at this camp, this Christian camp, the summer camp, and we kind of hit it off. We were friends. We had a lot of friends around. We kind of, like, like, got to know tons of people. And after a little bit, Kristen kind of saw, like, the real Dan Jacobson, the one who was, like, a 19-year-old who thought he was super mature, but Newsflash wasn't. And, um, and, and so, uh, joke's on her, because two years later, we got, uh, started dating and then got married. And uh, now... When we hang out with our friends from that time period, that from that camp, uh, Kristen, every single time we get together with these specific group of friends who knew me when I was at my lowest in life as a 19-year-old guy, who knew me and know her, they look at her. They always look at her like, you poor soul, why did you end up with him? And she says out loud to them every single time, man, I can't believe I married Dan Jacobson. And then she says this, of all people. Now, when I hear that, what I hear is, of all the millions of men in the world, true romantic men, stallions of love, <laughs> mine outraced them all and is the best that there is. I can't believe how lucky I am of all the people I got him. And when she says it with enough sarcasm, it actually means, can you believe out of all the billions of men in the world, I got stuck with this guy. That's what that, of all people, of all people. When you add the word of all people onto the end of something, it's kind of like, you know, when you say bless their heart. You don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing. Usually it's a, a bad thing. Of all people, it's a phrase that elicits some sort of shock, some surprise, some like, I didn't, I didn't see that in them. Wow, of all people, them, crazy. Yeah. Say that with me, of all people. 
This is the phrase that hangs over the entire passage that we have before us this morning in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You could sum up the whole entire passage here, verse 25 through verses 37, with just this simple phrase of all people. One day, a teacher of the Jewish law approached Jesus and asked him a very simple question. He said, what must I do to be saved? This is um, Luke 10, 25. I'll read it to you. It says, and behold, behold. Can we vote real quick? Should we bring the word behold back to the English language? That's awesome. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Behold, I'm going to the movies. (laughs) It's just better with behold. Behold, it simply means, hey, check this out. Okay, all right. So, so, hey, check this out. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke clarifies for us that the lawyer was testing Jesus. He was asking this question to set up a debate between Jesus and his own version of God. This is a very tricky game that we play. We, we are worried, too, about um, this question. What do I need to make sure that at the end of my life I'm good with God? Some people say, well, if you do more good things than you do bad things, then it'll turn out good for you in the end. And some people say, well, if you do religious things like come to church and take communion. Other people say, well, if you want to be good with God at the end of your life, you just got to do tolerant things because being good to other people is the utmost of value and virtue. We we have this question. No matter how you approach it, it's an important question to us. What must we do to inherit eternal life? And at the core of this question is what theologians call legalism. It's the idea that living in line with God's rules is what makes me innocent before God. This is honestly what Paul pulls out in Romans chapter 2, which we've kind of, kind of walked through now. You kind of understand a little bit better. This parsing out of this idea that if you live at the core of your life thinking that if I just keep the rules right, that'll make me innocent before God. And if you live your life with God's laws, your ultimate standard by how you're accepted, You'll spend lots of time trying to define the extent of the law. Jewish lawyers spent their time extending out the law, trying to to figure out the the law of God to give black and white answers to what I can and I cannot do so that in the end it might be good for me. Look at verse 26. Jesus says to him, it's a move of brilliance. He turns the tables on the lawyer. He says, what's written in the law? Hey, lawyer, you're a lawyer. Of all people, you should know what's in the law. How do you read it? There's a question that goes around in uh, church circles these days, small groups, things like this. You open the Bible, you're not really sure where to start with the question, and you look at the other people and say, well, what does this mean to you? And that is a terrible question. Don't ask that question. That's not what Jesus is asking here. He's actually evoking from this lawyer, this man who studied the law. He's saying, hey, 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 as you stand in the temple and you read out loud the words of God. What words do you say out loud? You know the answer to this. I know you know the answer. What do you say in the temple? And the lawyer, without missing a beat, he's like a good Awana student. He word for word has it memorized. Notice what he says, verse 27. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew's account of Jesus' life, he records another time when Jesus is asked this question, what are the greatest commandments? That's the way it's phrased. And Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, these are now the words of Jesus. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is Jesus is in, in indicating the entirety of the Ten Commandments hangs and can be summarized on this idea, love God and love your neighbor. For when you love God, you do not have any idols. You don't profane his name. You don't devote yourself to spending uh, time apart from him. And when you love your neighbor, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you don't covet, you don't slander. And this is the essence of the law. Jesus says in verse 28, so, so lawyer, teacher of the law, you of all people should know this, do this, and you'll live. Love God completely. Love your neighbors thoroughly. And what started out as a question to trap Jesus ultimately became a, the lawyer being trapped by Jesus. It's a, it's a Jedi mind trick that Jesus is capable of pulling. We can imagine the internal strife of this lawyer as he approaches Jesus, kind of size up a debate, and all of a sudden the tables are turned on him, and, and he confesses, well, I've got to love God perfectly, love my neighbor perfectly. As he considers what Jesus has said, yes, um, lawyer, you know the law. And he must have thought to himself, I do know the law. I know the law, law really, really well. I've studied the law. I've, I've memorized the law. But here's the problem is that I, I know that I don't do the law. I know that I don't fulfill what the law requires. I know that I've cheated, lied, and steal. I know that I've failed in account to the law. I know, I know that I actually have ended up hating the law. Because the law hasn't freed me. It's only become this thing to tell me what is right or wrong in my life. And it hasn't justified me. It's only condemned me. And because of that, I hate the law. Because I can't do the law. Last week, at the end of our first series in the book of Romans, we read from Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that um, through the law, no one can justify themselves. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Do you remember this? This is what Pastor Steve preached last week. And he, he, he showed us, hey, hey, you, you just can't, here's a newsflash, you cannot justify yourself through the law. And Paul will write those words a couple decades after Jesus has this conversation with this lawyer. Unfortunately for the lawyer, because had Paul been on the scene to help him out with this, he wouldn't have had to ask, ask the follow-up question that he does in just a, a verse later. Look at this with me, verse 29. Look at what Luke says. But he, desiring to, what are those words? What are those words? Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And isn't that a classic lawyer debating technique? This guy is like a straight-up Washington, D.C. lawyer. Like, he's American. I'm pretty sure this guy's an American. Be more specific. Could you define your terms? Could you use it in a sentence? This lawyer is going through great lengths to find a loophole to jump through as if there was a back door into the gates of heaven. And really, this is how silly it looks when we try and justify ourselves to God. We are people who will agree that God's law is our holy standard, but we will fail to live up to it. And when we fail to live up, up to it, we will justify ourselves. We will change definitions. We will try and find the loophole. We'll say, well, that wasn't a sin. That was just simply a mistake. I'm not actually as bad as I could be, so I'm not that bad at all. I'm not as bad as that other person. And we justify ourselves, don't we? We're, we're people who are seeking our own approval before God. 
We create loopholes and clauses and conditions and convince ourselves that we're better than other people. And at the core of this lawyer's question, we have to understand this, who is my neighbor, is a racial prejudice. Jews of this day believed that God had called them to love their fellow Jews as neighbors. In Leviticus, this is clearly stated, they had no interest in the affairs of foreigners and they thought that if we were to love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor with all of our hearts, that it followed that our neighbors are the people of God, that is, fellow Jews. And you and I have this same question today, don't we? But probably not because of the racial prejudice. We have the question, who is my neighbor? This Friday, I was uh, sitting in my office talking to one of our staff members, and um, he was just on his phone looking for an email, and up popped a breaking news alert that there was in progress a shooting in a high school in Texas. And he's looking at his phone going, wow, like, this is going on right now, and there's bodies, and I don't, like, this is crazy. And don't we live in a day and age where the globe has shrunk, and it seems like every time a truck runs through a crowd, like in Nice, France, or, or every time there's a tragedy on the other side of the world, or, or a tragedy in a different part of our country, because we have immediate access to it, we see what's going on, and here's what happened in my heart. I I literally am sitting there. I know I'm going to preach this message. I've been thinking about this question. Who is my neighbor? And all of a sudden I hear there's a shooting in Texas and I think, are they my neighbor? Like how far does my neighborhood go? Like, like what can I do about this current situation that's going on right now when I'm so far away? Who, what can Dan Jacobson of all people so far away do in this moment? Do I have a responsibility here? This is the question that is legalistic at its core. It is designed to limit our responsibility. It is designed to parse out the limits of the law. And um, this is a question, though, that demands an answer, don't we think? If we're to live like Christ, we need to know what's our responsibility. And to answer this question, Jesus tells a story. Isn't it good that Jesus gives us answers to our questions, amen? He tells a story. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, you might have heard this story, and it had a flannel graph when you were growing up, and um, know know what's coming down the road, so to speak, in this story. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Some of you grew up in church. That's great. Others of you didn't. That's fine. I'm glad you're here. The parable of the Good Samaritan which is a fictional story that gives us a very important spiritual truth. But, but we can't discount the fact that this very well could have been a real event that Jesus is pointing to. A real event saying, hey, do you guys remember what happened to that one guy just a couple days ago who was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho and robbers came among him and they beat him and left him for half dead? Do you remember that? Let's talk about what it means to be a neighbor from that current situation. Regardless, we know that the road down the mountain from Jerusalem to Jericho was incredibly dangerous. Like, it was the type of road that, you know, you would drive through in the daytime only with your doors locked, your radio down, your cell phone pre-dialed to 911 just in case the worst happened. I imagine this lawyer was listening to Jesus had walked this rocky terrain down from Jerusalem to Jericho with winding crags where robbers could hide out and wait for the unsuspecting lonely traveler. I bet this lawyer knew the dangers, knew the fear, and he felt sympathy for the Jewish man who was beaten and left for dead. And Jesus continues with a story. He says, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. When you had the flannel graph in your little Sunday school classroom and the teacher just kind of mocked this out for you and just kind of moved the person over and had them pass by, you know what you didn't think as a, like a, a, a seven-year-old? You didn't think about how absolutely awkward the situation would have been for Jesus telling this parable. Because in the crowd that day, listening to him tell this story were priests and Levites, no doubt. And here they are, Jesus is picking at them. Priests were those who uh, ought to have had compassion for fellow Jews of all people. They were the men who worked in the temple. They were bound by the law to perform the rituals of Judaism. These were the ones who represented the people to God and helped bring about holiness through the sacrifices given at the temple. And as a part of their commitment to this purity, this religious purity, this holiness, they were forbidden from touching corpses. So, perhaps, we'd all imagine for a moment that a commitment to religious purity was behind this decision to cross the road. But, you know, let's just vote here for a second. How many people think that's probably believing the best about the priest? I don't know if you've ever uh, worked in ministry before. Um, I want to tell you something about my heart and confidence that I just, I want to trust you with to not judge me um, on, but I, um, you know, oftentimes at the Hobart Portage campus, there's just a lot of needs, right? There's just a lot of needs, and people have needs. And I'll preach on Sunday, and then there'll be a line of people waiting to talk to the pastor, whoever that guy is, the pastor. I got to talk to the pastor. He's got the magic whatever. And so um, out of my calling, I'll stick around and, and talk. And I've noticed after I've said this to the other two services, nobody's wanted to talk to me. <laughs> I'm having a good day, guys. Um, but in my heart, there's this little thing that's like, man, my kids are at home. My wife's got lunch. I really just want to get back home. And I know you don't, like, Look at me poorly. I wish I had more in me to give, right? I wish I had more uh, whatever that thing is, but there's space for the Holy Spirit to work inside of my heart and to minister through me. And I can, I can relate a little bit to this priest who's probably spent a long day at the temple, did more sacrifices that day than ever, and looked at the road, said it was busy. If I stop, someone might give me. I've got a family to get to. I've got people waiting for me. I've got other busy things to do. And so he passed on. Regardless we can all agree that the priest leaves us with a very poor example. It's a poor example for us, and it's a poor example also for the Levite, the Levite who did the same thing. After seeing the priest pass over to avoid the man who was dying, he probably assumed, well, if he, the priest of all people, didn't care for the man, then why should I? And in verse 33, Jesus starts to go to work on this lawyer. He turns a story where no Jewish person would turn it. Look at what he says. Y'all with me still? Verse 33. He says, but a Samaritan. And I imagine the people in the crowd that day thought to themselves this. A Samaritan of all people. A Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, the Samaritan of all people had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So you have to understand 
that Samaritans were second-class citizens because they were, an, they were an interracial people. I don't know how to say that politically correct. They were an interracial people. They used to be Israelites, but they married foreigners and were no longer pure Israelites. I guess J.K. Rowling would call them mudbloods. And all of this goes back to the days of the Assyrian exile. I, I know you all read about the Assyrian exile before you go to bed every night. Um, so maybe I can just refresh your memory. It was 734 to 722 BC. The Assyrians uh, came in and conquered the northern kingdom. It's called Israel. And they, they took many of the Israelites out of that into captivity. And when the Assyrians would ever come in and invade a kingdom, they would take people out of it, but they would also put another conquered people in their place. They would create a vacuum and they would kind of move people around. It was kind of controlling the region by chaos. And during this period, the Israelites who were left back in, uh, in, at home in Israel, they took for themselves some foreign spouses. This is 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 28, if you care to look into it. So now you have the Samaritans who are now treated as way less than people in the eyes of the Jews. The disciple John tells us that they worshipped at a different mountain than the Jews did. The Jews, by the way, were victims of their own exile just 150 years later. That was the Babylonian and the Egyptian exile. And um, during that period, the Jews did not fall victim to the same scheme that the northern Israelites did. They could have settled for an Egyptian wife, but they didn't. Not like the scummy northerners they thought who accepted foreign wives. And so if you were a Jew, you looked down on Samaritans because during your exile, you kept the nation pure. If you were a Jew, you boycotted Samaria, you boycotted their stores, you made fun of them, you mocked their religious practices, you pitied their doomed future in hell, you avoided your kids getting to know their kids. Samaritans were accursed, they were outcasts, they were low lives. To the Jews, the Samaritans were not really their race, not really their religion, not really their responsibility. They lived next door to one another geographically, but according to the Jews, they might as well just lived on other sides of the world from one another. And Jesus says a Samaritan, of all people, a Samaritan came to the man and saw him as a person and felt compassion on this poor traveler. For Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of the story was <laughs> controversial to say the least. And it was so convicting that the end of the story when Jesus asked the lawyer, who of all these people was a neighbor to the man? And look at verse 37. At the end of it, he said, not the Samaritan. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Instead, he said the one who showed him mercy. And indeed, the Samaritan shows us today, so many thousand years later, what it is to live showing mercy, loving God and loving neighbor. I see four acts of mercy where I actually don't think this is the point of Jesus' parable, and I'll get to that in a moment, but just four acts of mercy that I see here, that if we would engage in these acts, it would actually free us up from the legalism that we feel in our hearts to the grace that God gives us. Four acts of mercy. First is this. I want you to say this out loud. Mercy sees. Yeah, mercy sees. Mercy begins with our eyes. Uh, here we see verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, see mercy sees the need, not the mess. Imagine the scene for a moment in your mind. It's horrific and messy and gross. There is a bruised man lying half naked in a heap in the middle of the desert road. Surely his eyes are swollen shut, possibly in a pool of blood near his body. 
But mercy doesn't obsess over the mess. Mercy sees the need and looks forward to the healing that's going to take place. For this beaten man, the need was help. The need was a doctor. The need was compassion. Mercy looks at the situation and says, something needs to be done. I see what you're going through. And how we need eyes to see the needs around us. The second thing is mercy serves. Mercy serves the man. He went to him. He didn't just cross the road, but he approached. He bound up the wounds and poured oil and wine on the man, which is essentially what an EMT of the day would do. Here's what the Samaritan didn't do. He didn't lecture him for the dangers of traveling alone on this road. And he didn't give him the four spiritual laws to say, hey, will you read this before I help you? He simply got on his knees and served the man. Third, mercy sacrifices. We get the picture from Jesus that the Samaritan had an animal that he was walking with or traveling on. And he got off his animal and let the injured man ride while he walked the rest of the way down the town. And isn't it true how mercy always requires sacrifice? To give up some of your comfort, to give up something that belongs to you. And in this case, it costs the Samaritan his speed and his safety in travel. But here's the fourth and last aspect of mercy that I see here and what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan spends. Mercy spends money on the man. The Samaritan saw, he served, he sacrificed, and he spent. Not only that, he spent two denarii, two days' wages. I saved you the Googling, and I did the math for you. According to inflation rates and all this stuff, two days' wages uh, here in Northwest Indiana is about $390.80 on average. And he spent that $390.80 on a complete stranger. And not only a complete stranger, but someone who probably wouldn't have returned the favor if it had been him on the side of the road. But he spends. He opens a tab. And he says to the innkeeper, let's make a contract. Surely the debt of this man is my debt. And so we look at the extent of mercy being shown by the Samaritan when we size it all up in our day and age. How lame are we with our random acts of kindness today? I gave someone a quarter at Aldi. <laughs> they said someone gave it to me. You just give it to somebody else when you leave. So I did a random act of kindness. Good Samaritan. <laughs> Paid for the guy's coffee behind me. He didn't know it was coming. 390 dollars and 80 cents. Some of you have the heart of the Samaritan. Some of you have been a blessing to so many people. I wish I could tell stories. I wish I had more time just to tell the good things here. I've got to, unfortunately, uh, attack our hearts here in the moment. But uh, some of you have this giving nature in you. I want to just encourage you, keep, just like Jesus says at the end, keep on doing acts of kindness and mercy like this Samaritan. But we look at the extent of mercy and we look at ourselves. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to just set up for you a random act of kindness type of life to fulfill the demands of the law. Instead, I want, I want you to see that the way you live out love God, love neighbor, what Pastor Steve coined, I think a brilliant term, oblatunity, right? Remember that word, oblatunity, love God, love neighbor, is by mercy and compassion on a regular basis in the routine of our lives. 
Jesus isn't asking us to once in a while help a guy stuck on the side of the road with his flat tire. Instead, it's a way of living out the gospel where in one sense Jesus is saying you can serve God all you want, but if you don't see the hurt and, and, and help the hurt around you, you're, you're ignoring God. And his final words in this passage are so simple but so profound. He, he simply says, go and keep on doing repetitively, repetitively in an ongoing ethic of love and mercy and compassion just like the Samaritan. And that's the encouragement Jesus has for us today. To go be agents of mercy and compassion in this world of violence and sin. And, and honestly, this is where this passage gets very complicated for us sophisticated Americans today. Independent people who desire a meritocracy where you do what you earn and you get what you earn. We ask the question, how is it possible for me? And the answer is absolutely quite simply, it's not. In one sense, this is the point. In the face of the demands of the lawyer pointing at the law, Jesus is agreeing with him saying, yeah, I know. The standard is so high. Like you want eternal life, you want to inherit eternal life, it's going to come at an incredible cost, an incredible sacrifice, an incredible need being met. It's humanly impossible. And yet in the midst of this law-soaked story, Jesus infuses a message of mercy and grace. He responds to the law with grace. And this is what Jesus always does. Friends, I hope you come back next week as we turn the corner in our Romans series to see how Jesus responds to the law with grace. It is absolutely amazing. And we see it right here. Because you know what's true about us in this story? Is that all of us have been dead in sin. Left in a mess on the side of the road. And we needed someone to see our need. And it was Jesus who saw us in our need, who came to serve us. He sacrificed himself for us. He spent his life to redeem us out of our debt to sin. It's only by grace that we are alive in his spirit. And you, 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 of all people, you know this if your life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know this very simple truth, and this is a great spot for an actual amen and not just a mental amen, okay? You know the truth that grace changes everything. Right, if you know Christ, yeah, yeah, you should applaud that, I guess. If you know Christ, you know that his grace comes into your heart and it absolutely changes who you are at a fundamental core level so that your desires are changed, so that your attitudes are changed, so that you can minister to others out of a, a spirit-led enablement and conviction. Grace, it changes us. And all of us here, of all people, we know this. We know God's grace. So why do so many of us today still live approaching neighboring like the lawyer and not like Jesus? Why is it that we find it easier to ask these questions of like, but that, 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 who, who is my neighbor, Jesus, as opposed to living out what he says? And for the rest of my time here, just a couple more moments, I, I want to just lay before us three arenas in our life that I see this passage helps us be relieved of the bondage of sin and the law to allow Christ to live out his life through our lives in his glorious gospel. Three, three arenas of life where if we would keep ourselves from legalistic ways, it would go well for us. I see this so clearly here in the text that the first arena that Jesus is pricking at in our hearts is the arena of responsibility. Everybody just say responsibility. 
At the core of this passage is the question, what is my responsibility in this life? Legalism asks this question. The lawyer asks Jesus, what is my responsibility towards my neighbor? The priest demonstrates his heart as he passes by the other side. Well, this is a busy road. Someone else will surely do this. The Levite mirrors this. If it's not his job, then it's not my responsibility. But isn't it true that people whose lives have been changed by the compassion and the mercy and the grace of Jesus are freed from the parsing of particularities of who our neighbor is to recognize that the question isn't, what's my responsibility? But rather, it is simply to declare, I will take responsibility. That's what the gospel puts in front of us. To not just be people who look around and say, well, it's not my job, but instead to look at the needs and with the eyes of Christ say, no, no, I'll take responsibility for that person. Maybe it's not my responsibility, but I've been changed by the mercy and the grace of Jesus and I want to take responsibility. What was it that compelled the Samaritan to take responsibility for this Jewish man in the first place? Was it not the most Christ-like characteristics of compassion and mercy? Of all people, he would seem to have the most reason to cross the road. Except mercy and grace simply say, I'll take responsibility. So here, let me just ask the question, kind of put this on the ground for us. Um, who takes responsibility for the hurting in your life? How many things do you see around you that you think, well, someone else is going to take care of that? And of all people, we who know Christ can and should take the responsibility to meet the needs of others. I think this is what James is getting at in, in James chapter 1, verse 27, which, which talks about religion that God accepts. It's, this is what it says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So pay attention, right? To visit those who have no one to take responsibility for them in their distress. Whose responsibility is the orphan? Whose responsibility is the widow? James says it's the family of faith that comes together with the mercy of Christ to take responsibility for those whom the world has said we don't take responsibility for them. Which leads us to the second arena of how this passage plays itself out in Jesus' eyes. First, legalism says, well, that's not my responsibility, but grace says, no, 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 I'll take responsibility. And second, we see this, it's in the arena of religion. You see, what happens is so many of us think that the church is the place that does all of this. I go to Bethel Church every, every first Sunday of the month. We take two offerings. We gather the collection twice. And we do that because we want to um, be kind and compassionate people. And can I tell you something? As a pastor, I'm incredibly proud to be a pastor at Bethel Church. Hope you know that. Because we have a commitment every four weeks, it seems, to caring for those who have a need. And y'all, that's amazing. I'm censoring myself because that's amazing, okay? I'm so excited about that. What other church gives away tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to those in the region just, just needing help, struggling with their NIPSCO bill, struggling with making ends meet? And so I'm all for us continuing to do that, for being a loving, gracious, benevolent church. But what Jesus doesn't say is that the Samaritan took the man and brought him to the temple where he got the help he needed. And what Jesus doesn't say is that the priest and the Levite, one grabbed an arm and the other grabbed a leg and they schlepped him back up the hill to the place where it was decided that these types of issues would be resolved. 
No, no, no. The obligation is for us to meet the needs of those in our region. It doesn't rest on the church staff or the church programs. And in some ways, that's Jesus' point. It's not the, the priest or the Levite who is going to do this. The Samaritan who, who, who actually worshipped at a totally different mountain, who was a less privileged race, he's the one who does what is good, who acts with mercy befitting the name of Jesus. And so what we're talking about here is a mercy that is extended to those who we might think do not believe the same things that we believe about God. When I moved to North Oceania, I was surprised at how many um, different religious institutions exist within like a two-mile radius of this place. Like, y'all, I think I could hit a driver and a three-wood and hit like some other type of faith within here. Is that, is that about right? Add a pitching wedge to it, right? And if we think we've been called to love the neighbor who just goes to Bethel Church, we're not actually doing what Jesus said because it extends into this area of responsibility in our lives to love those who don't even practice the same faith as us. There's a classic story from the life of D.L. Moody that I don't have time to get into, but, but in essence, D.L. Moody was down in Indianapolis for a, uh, a denominational rally where they were gonna ask the question, how do we reach the masses for Jesus? How do we help unsaved people get saved? And D.L. Moody just took it upon himself to show up to the opera house that they were gonna have this discussion at about four hours early. He grabbed his worship leader, put him on a soapbox outside in downtown Indianapolis, said, hey, sing some hymns. Within a couple of minutes, like 800 people had shown up because apparently back in the day, all you had to do to gather a crowd was sing hymns. You could still do that today, it would gather a crowd. Um, and uh, Moody moved everybody into the opera hall, and they had revival right there. A couple of hours into the meeting, um, the do- denominational men walked in, and D.L. Moody said, well, my friends, I'm sorry, we have to end our time right now because the men from the denomination want to ask the question, how do we reach the masses? And Jesus is saying, um, hey, hey, how do you reach your atheist friend who's your neighbor who you love very much but hates God? Do you set up a debate like the lawyer wanted to debate Jesus? No, Jesus says, no, no, no. Just go and do acts of mercy and compassion to show them the love of God. In some ways, we, we rail on St. Francis of Assisi because he's got that quote, you know, uh, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. It's necessary to use words, all right? But do we preach the gospel at all times? And Jesus says it extends to this idea as well. We are people who will take responsibility, who will bring the gospel to the world. And finally, the gospel of God's grace changes the way we live in a very particular arena, particularly the arena of racial reconciliation. We can't get over this fact, okay? Everybody, don't tune out. Don't, don't, don't think I'm going political here at all. I'm not, okay? What's the name of this parable? The parable of the good? Okay, okay, so his ethnicity is a part of the title that we've used for Two millennia. Why is it called the Good Samaritan? Well, because the Jews didn't think there was such of a thing. Jesus shows us that gospel neighboring crosses racial roads to come together, though. Jewish pride has been put in its place as their own people disregarded the needs of the fellow Jew, and the need was met by someone outside of their own ethnicity. It was met by a Samaritan who they hated. The message is so clear then as it is today we ought not be defined and limited to our fellowship and mercy and compassion for one another that we only serve the folks who look like us or sound like us or believe like us or think like us or sing the same worship style as us or come from the same country 
as us. The gospel calls us to love those who are different than us and to seek their healing and flourishing just like we seek our own. Which means, which means, you and I are not allowed to cross the road when it comes to the issues of racial injustice and intolerance and division in our nation and particularly in our community. And I don't think you believe that. When we as a predominantly Anglo-American church watch the news and hear of thousands of our black brothers and sisters being murdered in the streets of Chicago, I'm going to use a very um, sensitive um, illustration here for a moment. Um, A couple years ago, there was a movement started with a hashtag, and in response to that movement was a counter-movement started by people who were sympathetic to um, another group of people, and they created another hashtag, and this hashtag war has been going on in our community for two, three years now. And listen, in my heart, as I hear racial division existing in our neighborhoods, you know what I want to do as like a, you're, you're just a, a, a person here living in Northwest Indiana? I'm tempted to do this. Just to go, what can I do of all people? What can I do in the middle of this? And you know what Jesus says? He says, you, you want to you see eternal life lived out before your eyes? Go and engage. Have a conversation. Love across racial lines. Build friendships. Build relationships. Have people who don't look like you at your dinner table, around your table. Make sure your kids play with them. Not because the gospel is racial reconciliation. Hey, listen to me. The gospel is not racial reconciliation. But the racial reconciliation that comes as a result of the gospel is an implication that we all must be on the lookout for. And man, I'm so hopeful for Bethel Church. Because we... Of all people, we, of all churches, are uniquely positioned by God today to make waves in this sphere of racial reconciliation in a way that I don't know any other church in America is poised and positioned by God today. We feel it's it's a little bit of an irony that we identify with the Samaritan in the story, that Jesus says, go be like the Samaritan. And so here we are, a couple of generations later, identifying with the Samaritan, trying to be like the Samaritan when the Jews never wanted to be like Samaritans. They never wanted to be like the outcast. They never wanted to be like the one who was on the outskirts. And yet here we are in 2018 in a crazy America where isn't it true, maybe a little bit of you feel like we are on the outskirts as evangelical Christians. Like your friends look at you and you're like, oh, you're one of those evangelicals. And evangelical, for some reason, has become codename for a Trump supporter. However that happened, I don't know. And we feel this distancing. And yet, isn't it interesting that Jesus has called us to go and do likewise, and here we are positioned as outcasts on the outside of society. And he's saying to us, he's saying to you, Bethel Church, he's saying, hey, go and do likewise as this Samaritan showing compassion and mercy. Why? Because the world around you is going to go, huh, those people? Bethel Church? Of all people, I didn't think they had it in them. And in that, the world can see that everything we have here is actually all about him. Because the gospel changes our hearts in the way that we take responsibility for the needs around us. We share the gospel even with those who don't believe like us. And we see racial harmony taking place as we build bridges into the roads of other other races.
I'm out of time. I wish I could tell you the story of a guy at our campus, the HP campus named Bill, who's local law enforcement, who um, in the wake of some of these shootings has taken it upon himself to build relationships with young kids in downtown Gary. Wish I could tell you more of his story and the things that he's done to help those kids understand the perspective of law enforcement. I wish I could tell you the perspective of so many people in our church who are in law enforcement who are building bridges into different neighborhoods and communities trying to be the Good Samaritan. And likewise, I wish I could tell you all of our faithful African-American brothers and sisters who are trying to be like the Good Samaritan and building relationships across campuses and and trying to to figure out this thing as we see the gospel mirrored on, on earth as it is in heaven. I don't have time. All I have today is to ask you this. Bethel Church, who proved to be a neighbor to the man? The one who showed him compassion and mercy. So you, go and do likewise.